This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Jar Jar Wurrung peoples. We pay our respects to elders past and present and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Genocide and colonisation are ongoing processes that continue to this day. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello and welcome back to Ozpol Snackpod. We are Australia's foremost political nobodies and also the official podcast of the Ozpol Posting Facebook group. My name is Noon. I'm the admin and creator of Ozpol Posting, and with me as always is... Zach the Snack. I'm a mod on the Ozpol Posting Facebook group. Thank you, Noon, for joining me once again to describe all of the silliness that is Australian politics. No worries. And uh, we're recording this a day earlier than normal because uh, Zach wants to uh, have a nice weekend away. As you heard in the acknowledgement of country, he's up in Jaja Wurrung land. Um, so there may be some developments on these stories uh, in the, the slightly longer time before we release it than normal. Um, one of the things that was just breaking today is that Peter Dutton was very briefly maybe going to be arrested for contempt of court. Uh, but Boy, then he instead, was close. Then instead he denied someone a visa, so he wasn't in contempt of court. So that's a shame. Skin of his tiny little teeth. You seen his teeth? Uh, no, they're because they're extremely small within the potatoey yeah. uh, exterior. Um, despite that disappointing thing, why don't we start with our entree, which is also a, a combination positivity corner. Positivity corner. So uh, last month, the federal court found Vic Forests had illegally logged habitat areas of endangered species, um, and they yeah issued an injunction to stop logging in several areas. And uh, the judgment said this: the decision sets a legal precedent in applying federal threatened species law to the logging industry in Victoria, which for more than twenty years has operated under a special exemption. So Vic Forests is like the state-owned logging company? Yes, that's right. So it's uh, not a monopoly on timber, but it's the biggest one in, in the state. Um, and they log a lot of uh, like old-growth native forests and destroy a lot of habitat. And we've known about this for a very long time. Um, and there's yeah. So last month there were injunctions against them, and then uh, this week there were more injunctions because of more illegal logging. Um, and the news this week is that Bunnings has decided to completely stop buying Vic Forest timber until they get certified by the equivalent of fair trade, which is called the Forestry Stewardship Council. And Bunnings said this, Bunnings has a zero tolerance approach to illegally logged timber that dates back two decades. And our commitment is to only source timber products from legal and well-managed operations, uh, which is basically entirely bullshit. Uh, Everyone has known that Bunnings has been doing this forever. Uh, Sorry, that Vic Forest has been doing this forever. Um, It's no surprise at all. It's just now it's trickling through the courts and setting a bunch of precedent. Um, And Vic Forest is complaining that they're going to appeal and that Bunnings shouldn't, quote, preempt the court's decision but they're not preempting it. They're like, they've decided. And until the appeal is successful, they're like, they were doing it illegally. Um, so there's now like 70 coops, uh, which is like the areas that logging is divided into. So 70 coops with injunctions against logging those areas and a bunch of new precedent set. So that's very exciting. Uh, and I just wanted to quote the federal member for Gippsland, Darren Chester, who in response to this said Bunnings had shown, quote, complete contempt for their suppliers and hardworking timber industry families and that the companies were, quote, virtue signaling and risking, quote, the financial futures of dozens of timber workers and their families. Um, But I would like to say that Darren Chester is, quote, a giant asshole who, quote, wants to see the world burn to make a few quick bucks. (laughs) Uh, but despite him being an asshole, I feel like uh, yeah, Bunnings getting away from this terrible supplier and uh, more le- a more like legal precedent being said about it is definitely dangerous. a good thing. Hopefully, some of these things will come into effect before we lose literally all of our old growth forests in Victoria. Hundred percent, yeah. Mm, that would be nice. Uh, all right, moving on. So we're gonna play that little Corona sting. Hey, man, I got some more beers. Oh, I don't know if I can drink anymore. I'm feeling kind of sick. No, come on. We're having another round of Coronas. Because, um, yeah, in Australia, it's been relatively quiet on the Corona front for the past uh, couple months, you know, mm. relatively speaking, obviously. Um, but as I'm sure that everybody is aware, there has been a bit of a spike here in Victoria. So as of Thursday evening, when I did the research for this story, um, th- that will be Thursday the 2nd of July. 
um, Victoria reported 77 new cases, bringing its total active cases to 415. And just for comparison, there no other states recorded any new cases except uh, that day, except for New South Wales, who recorded 14. Yeah, wow, so that's such a big difference, yeah. It's a huge difference. It's the biggest daily increase since March. Mm. So of those 77 new cases, 13 were linked to known outbreaks. 37 of them were discovered through routine testing and 27 are still under investigation. So a lot of those are kind of looking troublingly like they were um, community transmission, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just person to person and not really, the government isn't really sure where they came from, which is worrying. So yeah. there's they're, they're, con- they're conducting what their uh, publicity team has described as a, quote, testing blitz. Right? Mm-hmm. They've set themselves a target of testing 10,000 residents a day. So it's a big fucking operation. They've got hundreds of um, people out setting up remote, uh, not remote, uh, uh, portable testing centers around uh, these sort of hot spots throughout Melbourne. They've got a thousand cops out on, in the streets enforcing the lockdown, which is pretty fucking intense. So there's, yeah, there's, there's been 10... a lot of them around my area in West Footscray. Uh, yeah. We... Door knocked by cops. Right, so yeah, mm. you are in one of the hotspot zones, aren't you? I am, yeah, yeah, I'm locked down. Yeah, there you go. Um, whereas I, who am like a 20-minute bike ride from your place, am totally mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, yeah, there's 10 postcodes uh, which encompass around 36 suburbs that have been locked down. And yeah, you know, a lot of... <sighs> Brunswick West has been locked down and apparently Brunswick West is full of people who A, love to meme and B, hate lockdown um, because... <laughs> Makes sense to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My feeds have just been flooded with um, Brunswickians uh, lamenting the new lockdown state. So, yeah, I mean, that, that means that you can only leave the house for essentials, uh, you know, doing shopping for what you need or study, exercise, medical care or work, which mm-hmm. is the other essential the thing that everybody thing must that absolutely do. do. Yeah, because there's literally no point in you being alive unless you're going to work. Uh, mm-hmm. All checks out so far. Uh, the other recent development was that um, 50 staff at a Woolworths in Sydney, and actually it's in your old home suburb of Balmain. Yeah, I know that Woolies well. Yeah, um, me too. We used to uh, go up there of an afternoon completely uh, blazed to the gills looking for some barbecue shapes or, or whatever, a little mm-hmm. bit of Lucasade maybe. Um, but so 50 staff at that Woolworths have been, uh, are now self-isolating after a co-worker who had been in hotel quarantine in Victoria tested positive for coronavirus. So there's a couple of things that we're touching on there. One is hotel quarantine, which I'll get back to later. So there's been some more news uh, surrounding that this week. But the other thing is that, you know, the, I think that uh, looking at the breakdowns of the clusters in, uh, in the new clusters in Victoria, the common factor really seems to be workplaces. Now, a lot of the government messaging has been uh, around families and mm-hmm. saying that these outbreaks are the result of like extended families doing large gatherings and not social distancing properly. But um, a number of those family clusters are actually connected to workplace outbreaks. Um, and uh, this isn't super related to these uh, most recent clusters, but just, you know... the. As an example of what I'm talking about, the biggest cluster in Australia was the Cedar Meats outbreak at a slaughterhouse mm. in, in Victoria. Um, and I hadn't realized this. Uh, I missed this detail when the story happened at the time. But they only found out that a worker there was positive for, for coronavirus after he had to go and get emergency surgery after he cut off his thumb at work. And then he got tested for coronavirus. Whoa. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just so fucking intense. And I think yeah, it, it wow. tells you a lot about the nature of the job's that people are still going to mm. uh, under lockdown and the, yeah, the, the socioeconomic status of the people who still have to, you know, still have yeah, to go to work. True. People who are going to jobs that, you know, putting themselves in physical danger and also, like you know, stuff at Woolies. Well, exactly. And, um, yeah, I mean, the conditions that, like, I could go on for a long time about the conditions at slaughterhouses, but mm. suffice it to say that. Uh, the people there work in extremely close proximity, and so yeah, you got a, you had a cluster there of over a hundred people um, centered around that abattoir. But so of the other um, clusters that uh, have popped up in Victoria since then, you've had two that have been connected to McDonald's employees. There were the 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 H and M employees who initially the media was trying to spin that to make it look like they got infected at the Black Lives Matter protests, but they just happened right, to attend. Also go um, to the rallies, right? Yes. Um, 
uh, and there's been some connected to shopping plazas. So yes, the there has been kind of family transmission, but like I said, it's been connected to workers. So the largest of these new clusters in Victoria is uh, a cluster of 22 people, a lot of them uh, from the same family, and six of those cases have now been associated with a Coles chilled distribution center, and several of them worked there while they were infectious. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, it looks like a family thing, but could very well be a work thing. Um, but so the other, but I mean, that really the main uh, glitch in the system that has resulted in these clusters has been the failure of the hotel quarantine system. Um, so these are the hotels where travelers who are returning from overseas are being quarantined for the two week period when they return to Australia. And there have been two major clusters centered around these hotels. And at least one of the family clusters that the government has been talking about was caused by a security contractor who was working at one of the quarantine hotels, then went home and transmitted to their family. So (laughs) there's been drips and drabs of news coming out this week about the hotel quarantine system. Um, And a lot of it is sort of, anonymous whistleblowers and there seems to be a lot of like hearsay and unconfirmed stuff going Mm -hmm. on. But basically the whole thing seems to be in complete disarray in Victoria. Uh, And it largely seems to be coming down to the private contractors that the government has hired to do this work. Um, So some of the things that have been alleged is that they've got completely untrained subcontractors who have never worked as security guards in their life being employed by these um, security companies because they're cheaper than, you know, somebody with accreditation or whatever. Um, Apparently, these people are getting almost no training, almost no personal protective equipment. There have been allegations that staff were told to sign a form saying that they had completed infection control training, even if they hadn't. Um, and the, the, like, if, even if they had completed the infection t- control training, apparently it was like a half-day session or something. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's been going on is uh, this practice called ghosting. And now I've seen this described differently by different media outlets and different stories. But the version of it that sounds correct to me is that the practice is contractors charge for a certain amount of security guards rostered, but then actually um, schedule fewer people than that and pocket Mm -hmm. the extra money, use fake names to fill out Mm -hmm. the the roster sheet. So uh, (laughs) it seems like a lot of the blame can be put at the feet of these security contractors and now none of them have been named in the press but I've heard rumblings that it's Serco uh, which would that checks out entirely surprise yeah. nobody um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know Serco is a company that has been involved in uh, doing security across Australia's immigration detention centre we know that they are super fucked and I do know that they're definitely running hotel quarantine security in Western Australia so it wouldn't surprise right. me at all if they're if running they're in Victoria as well plus they're like one of the two obvious like big security names or like maybe three yeah so yeah it would be very unsurprising yeah yeah totally um so (laughs) just before i wrap this up i'm just going to run through a couple of the other things um details of this story now this is kind of unsubstantiated at this stage but there have been some claims that um uh, basically people have fucked us into this mess Mm-hmm. Um, that there have been claims that guards have been sleeping with people who were supposed to be in quarantine, that people who were at different stages of quarantine uh, were sleeping with each other, um, and there have been transmissions that way. Now, this is all sort of hearsay, but also, you know, kind Sounds of juicy, right. kind of juicy news. Oh, yeah, I mean, you're like you're locked up in a hotel, the like for two weeks, locked up. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, like you know, got travelers, presumably a number of like young people as well. Obviously, totally. going a bit stir crazy, and they're all sort of acting like they're in the Big Brother house or whatever. Um, except the stakes are not, clearly not as high in um, now than they <laughs> would have been back in two thousand and three. Um, uh, the other thing is that there's been apparently the contracts that the guards had to sign when they started working at these hotel quarantines were quarantine hotels, rather, were basically effectively gag orders. They weren't allowed to speak out about the conditions there, mm-hmm. so that's why a lot of the info has been coming from. Uh, anonymous whistleblowers. But so a judicial inquiry has been launched about this. It looks like this could cause some potentially serious political damage uh, Mm. longer term for the Andrews government, I reckon. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, if it's true and we know that a number of the outbreaks clusters, 
is attributable to these quarantine hotels, like it could be really, really damaging. Um, yep. You know, and I'm sure the contractors themselves will basically get off scot free, but we'll have to wait and see. But so, you know, the rhetoric from the government around this, these outbreaks has been Andrew's doing his disappointed dad routine and mm. um, saying that he's very, you know, it's, I've told people that you shouldn't be hanging out with your entire families and you're doing it anyway. And that's what got us in this mess. And it's like, well, maybe it's actually the terrible systems that you've uh, like delegated to extremely dodgy private firms that have failed. That is the main problem. Yeah, but also this like zero tolerance approach. We're putting cops on the streets to enforce mm. lockdown. Like, I don't know. It's just a very um, uh, blunt approach, and seems to be kind of missing the point. Um, yeah, that's right. And, and like the people who were working at Coles or Balmain Woolies or the slaughterhouse or whatever would have all still gone to work if this was like in in place when they were going on, right? Like the. <sighs> Yeah, and, and it like ignores a lot of the um, factors that you know put people in the position that they have to go to work mm. in a pandemic mm. in the first place. And so yeah. just to close this out, I wanted to read this tweet that I found that I thought um, summed up what I would otherwise say much more concisely than I could. This is from at Camnam, that's K-A-M-N-A-M-M. They tweet, would love if the discourse could focus less on the individual responsibility of people in low socioeconomic areas to stop COVID-19 spreading and more on the failures of workplaces and politicians to consider the safety of those in essential services when being exposed at work. Boom. Totally, yep. Wow, that's a pretty blessed take, Zach. Uh, maybe that's a good lead into our next segment. It was the best of takes. It was the blurst of takes. You stupid monkey. <laughs> oh, yeah. Got a pretty bad one this week. Um, a take so bad that it's been retracted by the person and their employer, officially. So, this one is from Peter Credlin. And if you haven't been... You don't have a brain that is poisoned enough to make you actively care and read about Australian politics all the fucking time, then you might not know who she is. But uh, short answer, she's Tony Abbott's former chief of staff. She was his chief of staff when he got elected um, and then chief of staff uh, while he served as PM. Yeah. And uh, just got a little quote here from the Australian Financial Review. Quote, she was famous for her tough personal style towards ministers, backbenchers and political advisors during Mr. Abbott's government. Um, yeah, that's a very polite way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, she's known to be a little bit of a Malcolm Tucker type. Um, <laughs> I don't get that reference. From uh, the thick of it. Um, lots of swearing. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. One of those, one of those sweary political staffers. Uh, also, a lot of finger wagging, scolding, uh, very aggressive. And um, people always said that she couldn't delegate at all. Uh, she tried to do everything and then got mad at everyone else when it went badly. Uh, and also, like, yeah, ministers were always complaining that, like, she they found like out Kevin about Rudd. their own policy announcements. Yeah, true. From like Murdoch papers and stuff, and that was all done by Peter Credlin. So anyway. Yeah. yeah, and look, I mean, I'm sure that a certain amount of that uh, appraisal of her character has to do with um, just the fact that she is she's an assertive woman. woman um, yeah, but 100%. It also seems that basically um, she's an asshole, And I'm sure that by the end of this story that you'll agree that she's a piece of mm. shit mm. Uh, one way or the other. Um, interesting you mer- mentioned Murdoch. She now has a nightly n- news show on Sky News. It's called mm-hmm. Credlin. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> And genius. Um, genius marketing. <laughs> yeah. So on her show, Credlin, Credlin blamed Melbourne's COVID's uh, one of the new uh, COVID clusters in Melbourne on uh, on the South Sudanese community. She said that the cluster was the result of an Eid dinner, um, even though ninety percent of the South Sudanese community is Christian. Mm-hmm. She claimed that many in the in the community weren't reached by government messaging, even though it was in language, because they can't read. Claiming that women are banned from attending school in Sudan. Jeez. Uh, and a uh, bit of a quote here from her. When are we going to wake up to the fact that encouraging people to live here as South, as South Sudanese speaking Dinka rather than as Australians speaking English is not good for our society. It's not good for cohesion and not even good for our recently arrived migrants. Wow, that seems blatantly false. Like, as, as you said, like she's complaining about government messaging in a language that's accessible to people. Mm. Like, ah. Uh. Yeah, well, 
it, it, it's all, it was all wrong. Um, yes. <laughs> no, there was no, there was no COVID cluster associated with the, uh, Sydney's community and obviously not specifically as a result of an Eid of dinner. An Eid dinner. Yeah. Um, you know, by, with the Sudanese family. Uh, so there was basically immediate backlash. Um, Sky issued uh, an official retraction and Credlin apologized on her show. And on that note, uh, just a sidebar here, I also want to apologize because uh, last week when we were discussing uh, the uh, response to the corona crisis, I mentioned uh, a rumor that had me going around that one of the outbreaks was connected to uh, a family celebrating Eid. And yeah, that was just completely unsubstantiated and I shouldn't have said it and it was silly and I apologize um, because, yeah, that's the entire uh, MO of these racist assholes. They just spray this shit around and then it ends up just sort of floating down and landing in your brain and then you just end up regurgitating it later uncritically. And that was a bad job. Bad job for a podcast host. So, my bad. Um, but... <laughs> Hopefully, uh, we can make up for it by roasting Peter for her far more racist mm. shit. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, I, I just have a quote here from the, the Society of South Sudanese Professionals. Um, they say they consider this report a serious assault on South Sudanese Victorians. Irresponsible journalism can cause immense damage and further smears against a community already unfairly targeted. But most importantly... South Sudanese people are abiding by COVID-19 restrictions evidenced by extremely low numbers of infection in the South Sudanese community. So, I mean, Credlin's speech, her little editorial, is just full of the most tired kind of racist cliches. You know, Mm. the poorly assimilated migrant. It's not good for cohesion. Like, this stuff is textbook, like, white Australia. Yeah, 100%. A hundred percent what it sounds like, and but also this like oh they're they're not allowed to go to school there, which is also a claim that was refuted by the Society of South Sudanese Professionals. They're like, uh, no, sometimes it's hard to go to school if your area is like war torn or if you're you're from an sure. extremely disadvantaged community. But they're not fucking banned from going to school. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no way that this completely fabricated racist nonsense should have made it to air. An apology. Yeah, it's not like this was an accidental. Like they didn't fact check it enough or whatever. Like they just like made it up. She just decided this was the problem. She she was just going straight off the dome on this shit, basically. Yeah, like and she essentially did what I did last week. She was like, "Oh, I've heard this thing going around. This is why I'm angry about it." Um, with absolutely no investigation, you know, the difference being that she obviously has a national platform. Yeah. Uh, and like, you know, I mean, it's no, it's, no one is surprised to see racism coming from Sky News. Um, and like they've done, you know, much worse stuff than this that they haven't been pulled up on. Mm. And I'm sure Credlin has said equally as uh, horrible stuff elsewhere on her show, but this is the time that they got called out. But, you know, as I said, there's no way this stuff should have made it to air in the first place. An apology is not good enough, these incorrect mm. stories do sway people's viewpoints. Mm. And, and uh, just something that's been floating around on social media last week um, is this essential poll which uh, from, from The Guardian, which said that uh, 42% of respondents believe that many of the new cases of COVID-19 in Victoria have been from people who attended the Black Lives Matter protest, which we mm. know is wrong, but it was a narrative being pushed by the right-wing media and politicians – and you just say it enough times, eventually it sinks in and people accept it as fact. Yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, that's how the system works. So, yeah, I mean, uh, there's not going to be any consequences for Credlin beyond having to say sorry for this and retract the story. I doubt that she's going to stop with her racist rhetoric in future. Um, and there have been rumblings for a while that she might be getting into federal politics herself. She um, was very close to taking a tilt at a, a federal seat in Victoria last year, apparently. So mm. uh, you never know. She might. Unfortunately, watch that space. Yeah, yeah. She may rear her head again. All right. Well, now we're going to move on to our First Nations story. And we've actually got three stories today. Uh, three nice, small stories. I mean, they're not small. Like, all of them are big in their own way. But um, I'm not going to go super deep into them. Um, the first one is that uh, 269 artifacts have been found uh, off the northwest coast of Western Australia near the, near the Pilbara, uh, underwater. Uh, and it's the first ever offshore archaeological find on this continent. 
Um, they found, yeah, 269 artifacts, mostly stone tools, and they're estimated to be seven to 9,000 years old. And I didn't know this, but apparently, like, I mean, obviously, like, sea levels have been rising and falling for all of Earth's history or whatever, but the coastline used to be 160 kilometers further out, um, and that would have been land that was, like, occupied by people for, yeah, thousands of years as it slowly went underwater. And in fact, these artifacts were found very close to the Barrett Caves in the Pilbara, um, which are famous for their petroglyphs. They're like rock art. Uh, so yeah, I think there's a um, a lot more digs kind of planned now that this has happened. So that's very cool and will give us a lot more information about um, the people who are living there. And yeah, so that's awesome. Uh, another nice story in a similar area in, in northern Western Australia is that um, there's a mountain chain which has up until now been called the King Leopold Ranges. Um, for those who oh, don't no. know, King, King Leopold was a uh, like genocidal mass murderer who was responsible for the deaths of about 8 million people uh, along the Congo River. And who he was a, he was Belgian, and, right? He he was the king of Belgium, yeah. Hmm. Um, which is uh, an interesting story about why he was the king of Belgium, but um, it's not relevant now. Uh, yeah, he, but he, probably responsible for more deaths than the Holocaust and um, the like torture and maiming of millions more people. Uh, a famous thing was like cutting off people's hands. Um, that was like his thing. Well, it wasn't his thing. It was the people who he hired. But anyway, that's, yeah, really, really, really bad person. Um, and so, yeah, so they have, they have this mountain chain named after him and it's uh, finally being officially renamed to the name that it actually has in the language of the, like, traditional custodians who are the Ngarinyan and Bunaba people. Um, so it's now going to be called the Wunamin and Milewundu Ranges. Uh, so... Yeah, that's, that's good news. That's it. it is good news. Um, I, yeah, I, I think I said that they renamed it, but obviously, like, they've been named that the whole time. You know, for the whole <laughs> yeah, that couple name never went away. That it, white people yeah. have been that name never went away, but now the like, yeah, it never went away. But now, by it's, the country, now it's back. Exactly. Uh, and the third one is, I feel a little bad about it because it involves very slightly praising the government, but only slightly. They're mostly still crap. Um, but they are putting in more funding for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, the ATSILs, and other community legal centres. Um, and they've been billing this as a $248 million increase. Um, but actually, the vast, vast majority of that is just money that they said they were going to take away that they're now, like cuts that they have now uncut. Um, so it's only a $97 million actual increase, but it's still good news. And um, it's going in because it's part of a deal between the federal government and the states, so, which will see funding to ATSILs rise to about $440 million. Sorry, more, $440 million more. So although the federal government's only doing a part of that, uh, there's a bunch more money going into that. And, you know, we cover all of these stories on the show about um, – Aboriginal people being abused in custody and taken into custody for bullshit reasons and being injured and killed there. And we know that these Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander services and community legal centres and like the support network specifically for First Nations people in custody just like massively increase the chance that that person's not going to die mm. um, while in custody, um, just like to a, a huge extent. Um, so yeah, absolutely yeah, any, vital. Any, any yeah. money going towards that is, is so important. Um, cool. All right. Well, now we might move on to shit post of the week. Uh, so this shit post of the week. Well, we've got two, but the first one is a shit post, and I guess you could attribute it it's to the Australian two weeks government. in a row. Yeah, two weeks in posts. a row we've had shit posts. Yeah. Um. You could attribute it to the Australian government, but more accurately, you would attribute it to the Nation Brand Advisory Council. Um, and this is the new Wattle logo, the new Wattle logo for Australia. Australia has a new mm -hmm. logo, and it is a Wattle, uh, which it does look like the little coronavirus bacteria. It does look like that. Yeah. Like, even knowing that it's supposed to be a wattle, looking at it, I can't really make it look like a wattle. It's not like, super wattle Like, maybe it's, like, looking down the barrel of... I'm not sure. Like a bird's eye? Like, 
like yeah. I don't know. it looks kind of like a dandelion, but it looks much more like a coronavirus virus. And then a big, terrible font, which just says AU in the middle, which also has um, a stroke on it, like a little border, which is just, mm. in context, like, strikes me as a massive design no-no. Not that I'm an expert, but this looks like shit. I think we also, can all agree. this is a minor issue given all of the other problems with it, but AU is the chemical symbol for gold and this is yeah. golden colored and it just looks like it's something about gold yeah, or it really coronavirus does. <laughs> could be either but probably yeah. not australia but it's definitely not a waddle <laughs> so this new logo cost 10 million dollars it was yes. developed by the nation brand advisory council you want to take a guess who the head of the nation brand advisory council is no tell me like who's a who? Like who's a who is a rich asshole who just happens to be behind a bunch of the silliest shit that happens in this country? Clive Palmer. Oh, that is so close. It's Twiggy Forest. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the council Wait, also he... has. He he heads up the Nation Brand Advisory Council. So this is our new Nation brand. Um, so the, the advisory council also includes Alan Joyce and the chairman of Coopers. So that just sounds mm-hmm. like an extremely fun room to be in. Um, yeah. But so this new Australia logo has sparked anger from many a right-wing politician. I'm just going to bring you a couple of my favorite responses. So one that has been uh, a tweet that has been posted in basically every news article about this story is from a New South Wales uh, liberal politician called Mark Coor. And again, you don't need to know the names of any state politicians. They only end up in the news when they do something extremely clownish, such as this tweet. Quote, I can't believe they have changed the Australian-made logo to look like this. It looks like a virus. I will be writing to the Australia's Nation Brand Advisory Council and Trade Minister to reinstate the kangaroo. Bob Catter posted something with a, a big picture with the heading, Iconic kangaroo ditched for abstract wattle. Quote, what a joke. Only 53 Australian consumers were consulted on changing the logo we use to promote ourselves overseas. And... I- Actually, hearing it described as an abstract wattle makes me like it a lot more. I, uh, I'm not sure. Maybe that should be my DJ name, DJ Abstract Wattle. You're welcome to it. Uh, it'll mm. make you very unpopular Thanks, with liberals and, and um, conservative independents. It's fine. I don't like staying up late. So, you know, the fewer <laughs> gigs I get, the better. <laughs> uh, the other response that I wanted to, to read was mm-hmm. one from our, our very own Barnaby Joyce, who, you, you know, mm-hmm. like... He's a huge fucking piece of shit, but he's often quite entertaining. Now I hear of some dippy idea to replace the kangaroo with an interpretive emblem that is a cross between the coronavirus and bird poo on your windscreen at 80 kilometers an hour? How on earth is someone overseas going to know, oh, obviously a modern art marvel, an obscure representation of a waddle with two big letters on it, far more appropriate than a kangaroo. I mean, kangaroos, where are they from? Uh, Go off, Barnaby. Um, The one little... Uh, sticking point here is it's not replacing the Australian-made kangaroo logo. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the, it's it's just it's just used for a completely different purpose, and all of these politicians have gotten so upset about it replacing this thing that it's not replacing. And when I started researching for the story, like I had just taken them at their word. I was like, "Haha, it's mm-hmm. pretty funny sure, to have replaced the, the Australian-made logo with this silly thing." Yeah, but they haven't even replaced it. This is apparently it's for industry bodies, government agencies, etc. To use at promotional events like trade shows, conferences, mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. kind of thing. You know, a couple of Aussie government suits standing around at a little trestle table, and they've got the big poster that's kind of you know it's like one foot wide and three foot tall kind of thing. It's got a big waddle on it. That's what it's for. It's not. It's not going to go on your, on your little tomato sauce to say yes, this was made in Kensington or wherever. To be fair. It's still bad for that. It is still terribly designed in a piece I of I mean, they should logo. just use the Australia-made kangaroo logo instead. It, look, I'm not better. saying that they shouldn't. No, I'm just no, saying it's I'm not, not replacing it. of endorsing it. <laughs> and what it is yeah, replacing yeah. <laughs> is also a really shit logo. It's uh, the, the previous one that was used for that purpose is the Australia Unlimited logo, which is just like two boomerangs. Um, in the shape of Australia. I looked at yeah. it. It's, it's kind of nice. I, I don't I, know. It's I better mean, than the waddle, I reckon, but probably, neither yeah. of them are good. No, they're not good. Um, and um, <laughs> the closest, uh, I, I just wanted to read a quote here from the trade minister himself, Simon Birmingham, who I learned today, who is twi- whose, tw- whose Twitter handle is 
Burmo. So congratulations Burmo. on um, managing to get that OG display name for yourself. Uh, he said, now, I don't hold myself out of some advertising or marketing guru. That's what we have experts for. But I think people will see that it is, is a stylistic, modern representation of Australia. Uh, I encourage you to look it up for yourself and decide yeah. whether or not you agree with that. Uh, I also love, that's what we have experts for. In other words, yeah, you've got the <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's what of, we have experts for. Rich, not- clueless clowns <laughs> who you paid $10 million to come up with this thing that has just gotten you absolutely roasted by everybody. Yeah, we don't listen to them about like uh, cutting fossil fuel production, but this terrible logo, I think they, you know, we should listen to listen the experts. We're going to listen and also give you all of our money. Uh, now, Noom, we also had a shitpost of the week of our hearts, just quickly. Oh, yes, we did. And this one is from Leah Rapato, who has somewhat, unfortunately, won shitpost of the week once before uh, for a meme that she didn't make, that we thought that she had, but she had, in <laughs> fact, stolen. And she had stolen it and without crediting them on my specific instructions. So it's it's fair enough. It's our own fault. But um, this is definitely OC, and this is from Leah. And it's that meme of a, a worried-looking chihuahua with a hat on standing on four, like, soda cans. You know, it's four loco. Four loco, gotcha. Yeah. Little four loco okay. cans. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and the the four cans are labeled Hill's Best Thing Post from Hill Montato, who did a mm. What Was the Best mm. Thing That Happened This Week post, which mm. was nice. Uh, photos of newspapers, uh, Henry posting theories, and memes and articles. And then the dog is Ospol Shed posting, being supported by those four pillars. So, yeah. Four pillars of Ospol Shed posting. It's a nice little I- bit of group OC. It is. I yeah. Photos and newspapers. Thank you, Leah, for you know. You've got to shout out my hard work the, and contribution the, to the, the classic <laughs> noon blurry close up of the age. Yep. All right. Um, why don't we move on to our most refreshing segment? Fashy Australia. And yeah, we're still sorry that it's not called Fashiona, but Zach just refuses to redo that sting, which is fine. Um, Wait. So that's not. You said you didn't... Okay, whatever. Moving on. I mean, on. I... D- <laughs> yeah, I, I like Fashy Australia better, but also you refused to do it. No, I said... But I'm, I'm still sorry. I, I was just reading our reviews before. Let's we take this conversation off, uh, Thanks, offline. Thanks, guys. All right. <laughs> <laughs> should, I, should I start the segment No, keep again? going. Keep going. All right. On Wednesday, the Prime Minister <laughs> announced a $270 billion spend on defense capability over the next 10 years and just for comparison that could pay for everyone currently on job seeker until 2025 so there you go um and he said this the adf now needs stronger deterrence capabilities capabilities that can hold potential adversaries forces and critical infrastructure at risk from a distance thereby deterring an attack on australia and helping to prevent war uh which I'm not like a defense policy analyst, but I think that means he wants to be able to blow up Chinese cities. Um, so some of this money is going to 800 new troops, 650 of which are in the Navy. Uh, and 800 million of it is going to a uh, series of long-ranged anti-ship missiles, which is a misnomer because they can also hit land-based targets. So they're just really long-ranged <laughs> missiles. Uh, but they are like, they're, like de- they're designed to um, hit boats uh so they're also looking into buying missiles designed to hit land targets so you know love, extra like, money the, going in that direction soon i also feel like defense capability is a fucking misnomer as well i mean these are yes these are offensive capabilities they're like it's military spending just fucking call it what it is like yeah defense the whole point of it is like to literally act aggressive in order to stop people like Mm-hmm. What there was a the Channel Nine like Chris Ullman did a little editorial on Channel Nine and it was like the Australian government has sent a strong message to China: don't mess with us. Like this kind of you know just macho posturing on a national level is just yeah fucking pathetic. And I don't know at a time when you're like oh I don't know if we can really extend the welfare for everybody. Not sure if our pockets totally. are quite deep enough for that. Like you know it's a very basic argument to make, but Jesus Christ. Just yep. stop buying missiles and you can afford everything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. Well, uh, hold on to that thought, Zach, and listeners. And I just want you to remember that 
uh, you know, if you if you spend less on missiles, you could pay for anything else, and we'll we'll get back to that in the mains. But yeah, no, it's like that. Um, oh, please, that drill tweet. My my family is starving. I'm spending six thousand dollars <laughs> on candles. What should I do? Uh, spend less on candles. No. no. <laughs> yeah. No, my um, front page. I want my face on the front page of the Herald Sun next to these big shiny new missiles. Uh huh. God, they just so love this also, shit. At uh, ninety-three billion dollars being spent on new long-range and sonar weapons, um, so uh, people who have been watching the riots in the U.S. might have seen those LRADs, uh, the like sonar weapons deployed against the crowds. Um, I think and here as we well. Believe, it, yeah, people think that they were tested at uh, the rally in Sydney, um, yeah. but officially they were not. But there was a photo of a cop holding a thing saying said LRAD on it. So yeah, it seems like it probably was. Um, and yeah, I think you actually mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Um, we couldn't remember the name, but there's this idea of Foucault's boomerang, uh, new like military technology deployed in overseas wars will always be then deployed against the home citizens. Mm. So yeah, I'm looking forward to those new long range and sonar weapons being deployed here. Um, there's also about $7 billion being spent on underwatering, underwater monitoring and maybe uh, like unstaffed submarine drones and I'm actually kind of into this underwater monitoring thing because there's a chance that it could discover Leviathan, the like uh, ancient sea beast that will be there on the day that the world ends. So anyway, I'm, I'm kind of into it. But um, it'd be good to get a heads up if we drink. can see get Leviathan, if we spot Leviathan sort of early in the day, we can you know get a bit of a heads up and prep. No, I mean Leviathan's there the whole time. It's just that I think the day that the messiah comes back he's gonna like uh, leviathan will come out of the water and have a fight and they're gonna kill it and serve it to the like people who are reincarnated not 100 percent sure about that that's not i'm um, uh, riffing on a bad memory but uh, <laughs> sea beasts i'm into sea but beasts that's, cool. uh, short, short answer that's why you're in favor of massive military spending yes it's the most logical reason to spend it that i can think of so <laughs> most logical reason i've heard so far um, one of the big talking points about this spend has been that the world is like, oh, it's a very different world with coronavirus. And so this is an urgent spend with hard hitting and short term impacts, but obviously it's like being spent over the next 10 years. Um, and it's the same kind of language that we are being given about the coronavirus economic response, right? Like job seeker and job keeper and job maker and home builder, um, which just, Fuck off, Scott Morrison. But um, <laughs> <laughs> like all of those, he's like, oh, yeah, well, this is a short, sharp uh, stimulus to get the economy and it's unusual times. But in those situations, he's using that rhetoric to mean we can only spend this for a very short amount of time and only a small, like a limited amount of money. But he's using the same language of like, it's a short term, hard hitting response. We need to do it quickly and go in hard to lock in structural spending for more than 10 years. Um, uh, so like, no, that's totally clearly- consistent. A big hypocrisy there, yeah. It's and- consistent when you look at it from the perspective of all of these policies are aimed at one extent or another to, or like his rhetoric around them is aimed at poor people. Because all of this language around, oh, the world's going to be so unstable after coronavirus mm. and we need to be more pr- protected. It's just this sort of vague, and en- the vague enemy being referred to here is just like, oh, a bunch more people are going to be struggling around the world and we need to yep. be prepared in case they want anything we from us. We need to blow them up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so from that perspective, you know, it is, it's sort of all tracks. Hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so now I want to transition to our main course and we're having... Many munchable treats. Nice one, Noon. Thanks. Yeah, uh, that's uh, a pun on modern monetary theory, MMT, which I'll get to. But that's uh, that's what I'm going to be talking about for mains. Um, but yeah, as I've kind of just been talking about, the economic response to coronavirus has been mediocre and ideological. And honestly, I think it's low-key amazing that they managed to like bring themselves to increase job seeker even the like small amount they did, or to bring in job keeper, even though they did it pretty badly. Like I was like. You know, if we'd had Tony Abbott, there's no way that would have happened. No. Um, no. But then they go and spend, like, five years' worth of Job Seeker on missiles. So, like, clearly we can afford to be spending more than we currently are. And the reason I want to talk about modern monetary theory um, is that it's this, like, economic concept that basically adds up to governments can spend a lot more money than they currently are. Um, And 
it kind of does away with the whole rhetoric of like, we could spend less on this and then we would have more money for blah. Um, so I will tenuously connect it with Ospol, but yeah, I, I just wanted to discuss modern monetary theory because it's something I've been thinking about recently. It's been coming up in the news a lot more. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is into it at least a bit. Um, and yeah, we had a bit of a discussion about it on Ospol shitposting Facebook group uh, the other day that I was I found quite interesting. So yeah, I wanted to discuss it a bit on the show. Um, modern monetary theory is a terrible name. It's got awful branding, which is exactly what you would expect of like heterodox e- economists, uh, which is <laughs> uh, what these people are. Um, there's a joke that it actually stands for magic money tree, which is a pretty good name for it, because as I said, it, it basically like the end result is governments can spend more money. Um, it's a catchier name. Yeah, yeah, totally. Fancier, fancy free. Um, and if you talk to MMT proponents, they'll often be like, oh, we're not proponents, we're not advocating, we're not advocating for anything, this is just explaining how things really are, and then they'll immediately <laughs> be like... That's what all economists say. It's true, they're they all, all like, describe oh, themselves. The objective. We're just scientists observing natural laws, yeah. 100%. <laughs> And, well, yeah, the but then one. they're immediately like, and the natural laws say that you have to do this, this, and this, right? So there's, <laughs> there's kind of two parts to MMT, the descriptive part, which is like the theory about how the economy actually works, and the prescriptive part, which is like what you should do with it. So essentially like what policy options become available as a result of viewing the economy through this lens. Gotcha. All right. And as I said, the prescriptive part basically is like you can spend more. So yeah, uh, but the descriptive part goes like this, All right? So any government that prints its own money can't run out of money. Makes sense? Checks out so far. Yeah. What if you run out of um, the stuff you print the money on? That might be an issue, except we have computers now. So, yeah. Oh, um, problem solved. Yeah, and like this is actually very un- uncontentious. Um, the, the, there's a former U.S. Reserve Bank chairman, guy called Alan Greenspan, who was famous for being horny for Ayn Rand. Um, and he said, "Oh no!" Like literally, they they like had yeah, a long, no. torrid like affair, which broke up both of their marriages and shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, like I said, oh no. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And he said, "The United States can pay any debt it has because we can always print money to do that. So there is zero probability of default." Um, and a couple of years ago, the British Treasury released a paper that said basically the same thing. And um, MMT theorists love pointing at this British Treasury thing. Okay, and it's important to note that this whole theory, all of MMT, only applies to governments that print their own money. Um, This is called fiat currency, and it has to be like a national fiat currency. So, like, Australia does this, right? We print the Australian dollar. America does it. They print the American dollar. But Greece does not do that. They're a member of the Eurozone. They use a euro currency, which is printed by the European Central Bank that Greece doesn't have any control over. Okay, so... I'll kind of get back to Greece as an example because it's kind of like in people's minds as like a place where there was an economic situation that was dealt with with austerity, um, which is kind of the other option to MMT is like austerity logic. Um, so for the rest of the episode, if I say government or a country, just assume that I mean a government or country that prints its own money. Okay. All right. So governments pay for things by creating money or printing money in the bank accounts that need it. So, for example, this $270 billion that's being spent on missiles is basically just going to be transferred into the Defense Department's bank account, kind of like if I was sending you money for something, Zach, on my bank account, except instead of like coming out of mine and going into yours, it's just going to go into yours, right? It doesn't come from anywhere. The Reserve Bank is just going to like transfer that money newly creating it and there will be Mm -hmm. a ledger that's like we owe 270 billion like there'll be a negative on the other side but like that money didn't come out of a heap that previously existed right and this is kind of the other side of it is that if governments create their own money then tax isn't used to spend on things right sure You, you seem a little confused by that one no, I'm just um, waiting to see where you go with this. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. You and your magic money tree. Yeah. Okay. So if the money is just being magically created in the bank accounts, then the money coming from tax isn't really being used to pay for it. And this is really obvious if you look at actual government spending. Uh, when I wrote these notes, I checked the US debt 
total, uh, which you can check at a website called Debt Clock, which is very alarming. And they're up to about $26.3 <laughs> trillion the other day. Um, Holy and it was moly. like ticking up fast. And like literally no one expects them seriously to ever pay that back, right? And mm. that includes the Federal Reserve, who, as Alan Greenspan said, will just print more money to prevent the government from defaulting. Okay, so the amount of money that you collect from tax doesn't affect how much money you can spend. That's the real lesson there, right? Um, the the spending, the the outcome, sorry, the outgoing money and the incoming money don't have to equal one another. They are sort of separate processes, right? And now this is the most boring part of this description, um, but it's also sort of the most important one, which is that the thing that actually limits how much government spend isn't revenue, but inflation. Mm. Uh, Okay, so inflation yeah, well, so is... That's, that's, as I understand it, that's the, that's the logic behind, no, you can't just print your own money because totally. then your money becomes worthless. Yes, exactly, right? So that's what inflation is, is when currency becomes less valuable. And it's basically happening all the time everywhere, which is like, why, back in my day, ghost drops cost five cents, and now they cost 20 cents, which is true, it's fucked uh, that ghost drops are that expensive. But anyway, um, and if you have don't trouble... Me, don't get me started on paddle pubs. For real. $1.70? Um, Fuck off. And that's a cheap one. If you have trouble remembering inflation other than thinking about ghost drops and paddle pops, um, you can always think of hyperinflation, which is like the like when it's real, real Near bad. Wheel wheelbarrow full of cash in order to buy a loaf of bread. Exactly. Or How many throwing, times have you heard that example? Yeah, throwing the currency into a fire because it burns longer than how much wood you could buy with it. That one always stuck with me. There's photos of people like throwing, I think, their Reichsmark uh, before World War One, just like mm. throwing these like loaves of cash into the fire. And mm. yeah, it does low key so, sound kind of satisfying. I mean, I'm sure that the circumstances surrounding that would have been um, soul deadening, but you know, totally. Yeah, but the, in that if you think moment, about the feeling the, of the lighting a cigar with a hundred dollar bill. Times a million. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Um, So inflation happens when there's too much money changing hands. And so that's what, according to MMT theorists, taxes actually do, is that they control inflation by reducing how much money is out in the world. Okay. Does that make sense? So you're printing a bunch of money. Does MMT theory hold that this is just, this is the effect? Or do they hold that... This is what governments are consciously doing when they tax people. No, I think they think they... So, sorry, I said that unclearly. No, I think MMT theorists think mainstream economists who are running the government treasury are using the wrong logic to do whatever they're doing. Gotcha. Which is why, for example, Tony Abbott brought in or tried to bring in austerity measures in 2014 because he doesn't understand that actually governments create their own money. Or if he does, he's like denying it or whatever. Okay, could so that's be basic. Either. It could, it could With be both. Tony. Yeah. Um, so that's basically it for the descriptive part. That governments create money, and then they what taxing does is remove that money from circulation. Um, it's not like a household budget. They're actually like controlling the amount of money in the in supply. Mm. And the main takeaway from here is that all of the talk about balancing the budget budget surplus, deaf and deficit disaster, austerity is total bullshit in any country like Australia where we print our own money. And the main limit on government spending is inflation, not revenue. That's the the bottom line. And and it turns out that you can spend a lot more money than we currently are without increasing revenue. I'm not 1000% on board with modern monetary theory even though I find it like somewhat convincing. Um Mainly because I'm a communist and it's a very capitalist theory. It's like basically about like, what if we fixed capitalism by printing more money? Um, but I, the one thing that really makes me think about it more seriously than just like, uh, okay, I don't really care, is that it accurately describes what happened in a game I used to love called Kingdom of Loathing. Um, <laughs> which has a currency called meat, because the idea is if you kill a monster, like, why are they carrying gold? No, you just, like, hack the meat off their corpse. Yeah. Um, so there's always inflation going on in Kingdom of Loathing. Um, and so the creators created these things called meat sinks, which are basically ways for them to suck huge amounts of meat out of the economy. So, like, people could spend money to get their names on a, like, billboard that's now there forever. Um, and so that meat got, like, sucked out of circulation. Uh, and it didn't go to the game admins so that they could spend it on 
stuff, right? It just got completely removed. And this is what MMT theory is saying is happening in actual economies, um, which made me think that like there could be some really cool experiments done in MMOs, right? Like maybe like having a new currency produced other than the default one that the game recognizes or something like that. I don't know. I'm, uh, I don't like have an idea they're properly formed, but any uh, like academic economists out there listening, um, please feel free to steal that idea. Okay, so that's the descriptive part. What does it mean for policy? Like, why bother talking about this? Um, what does it mean we can do? The most important thing from my point of view is to say that austerity is not effective and not relevant. And it, this is like a really boring, hard-hitting technical reason to tell the government to fuck off about balancing the budget or trying, oh, we can't afford to spend more on Aboriginal legal services or, you know, um, on job seeker. Like, no, fuck you. You can. That You are consciously ignoring how economies actually work because your ideology is more important than, like, mm. actually logically thinking about it or whatever. Okay. So that's, from my point of view, the reason why I kind of like this is that it is a... Like, yeah, I think a fairly convincing explanation for why all of that rhetoric is complete nonsense um, and why we should reject any austerity policies, any rhetoric about balancing the budget or reining in spending. Um, what it actually means is the government can spend way more or tax way less. And MMT people are always like, oh, yes, uh, we are um, balanced, fair and balanced. You can be right wing. But in practice, nearly all of them are like progressive Greens type people. Um, but they, they pretend to be open to right-wing people. And there's this one line that I've heard a lot, which is that like Trump was doing MMT policy when he brought in tax cuts, even though they couldn't afford it and the economy was doing fine. Um, so technically any bullshit that makes the government have a bigger deficit is informed by MMT. Um, so like, the, I mean, there's zero chance Trump knows or cares about MMT. He was just doing what he want because it was good for him and his buddies. But like, yeah. Um, so just some of the things we could do, pay for healthcare, including dental and mental, uh, guarantee or build housing for everyone, deal with climate change directly by paying for the things we need, like re replacing fossil fuels with renewables and batteries instead of indirectly with things like a carbon tax. Um, and the one thing that like um, MMT people will tell you is like uh, an actual integral part of the descriptive part of the theory, not prescriptive, which I have no idea why they say that, but it's a jobs guarantee. And that's because there's a close connection between unemployment and inflation. And we're kind of running out of time. So I don't, I won't get into a huge amount of detail, but the short version is that according to like mainstream capitalists, there's a quote, natural rate of employment, uh, which is a bullshit word that actually means like, the amount of unemployment that keeps inflation flat. It's about 5%. And the idea of the jobs guarantee is that instead of that 5% of people being unemployed, they could have an optional minimum wage job guaranteed by the government, uh, which wouldn't replace welfare, but was an optional added uh, addition to welfare. Yeah. Um, and I'm not entirely convinced that this is unideological in the same way that I think their description of money circulation is, but I think it's a good policy and um, totally worth doing. So yeah, that, that's uh, that's my MMT rant. Um, I think it's interesting. I think it's always good to have theoretical objections to reactionary policy. And I also think even as a communist who like ideally we would be living in a world where people didn't have to worry about money or jobs guarantees or whatever. But in the meantime, I think we should be spending a lot more on helping people, you know, with welfare and um the, the various things that we need to make people's lives like safe and happy. So yeah, uh, I think MMT might be a good avenue to explore for progressive uh, politics and policymakers. It definitely seems like as an economic attitude or theory, I guess more, more accurately, um, it definitely is leaning much more towards a progressive or socialist or even communist uh, perspective on the economy and the way that it can mm. function as mm. opposed to, like an economically conservative or neoliberal point of view where it's like, no, 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 it's a zero-sum game, basically, as mm, opposed totally. to, no, yeah. the job of the economy is to provide for everybody and yeah. you should be able, you should, like, remove all artificial restrictions on helping people if that's totally. what it takes to get the job done. Uh, and obviously it still exists within a capitalist framework, but I can see how... It would be a, a pretty major paradigm shift towards a more yeah, economically absolutely. leftist point of view if the government totally. was to adopt those 
policies and make them sort of mainstream economic yep. policy. Yep, 100%. Beyond that, there's still a lot about it I don't understand. I'm going to be honest. Yeah, with me you. too. No, no. I, I've just been reading about this recently and thought it was interesting and relevant to, you know, every week we talk about the government cutting things that need money and spending it on bullshit that doesn't. And, um, like, that kind of almost proves that they know that they're making the money, right? They're, they're, they're only using this logic of, oh, we can't afford it for things they don't want to spend it on. Sure. They know that they can spend this money if they want to. And mm. this is the reason why they can do that. And so, yeah, I, 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 I think it is useful to keep in mind, you know, three times, we had three stories, I think, today, where we were like, why are they spending that money on that? They could be spending it on something else. Mm. And this points out that actually they could buy missiles and a welfare state. Not that, you know, not that we should be buying missiles anyway, but yeah, no, I mean, and it's interesting the way that um, the mainstream disc. Sorry, cat has just jumped across my. <laughs> that was so rude. Um, I guess that just goes to show how the mainstream economic theory and discourse will sort of box your thinking into a certain mm. uh, place or perspective, and then we're suddenly having conversations about no, no, that we need that money that you're spending on missiles to spend on this other thing. Uh, and that's sort of uh, uh, beyond a complete dismantling of the system uh, and a recreation of one where everybody gets what they need without money. Mm. Uh, you sort of like, yeah, you're trapped in this sort of relatively limited way of thinking, or at least that's how I feel. Mm. Um, just before we get off this, um, I don't know if you covered this already, but how do modern monetary theorists account for the inflation that will occur? Because you said that like one waves to create meat sinks, for example, but what would mm -hmm. a policy version of that actually look like? Or do they dispute whether or not it would happen in the first place? So the main thing is the jobs guarantee, right? Because there's this inverse relationship between unemployment and inflation. The more people who are unemployed, right? So inflation is when there's too much money out there, basically. And so when people are unemployed, they're all like, I need money. So there's sort of like the more unemployed people there is, the less too much money there is in the economy. Gotcha. So that makes sense. And so the jobs guarantee is a like humane alternative to having 5% of the population like starving and homeless and, you know, whatever goes with unemployment or involuntary unemployment, whatever. Um, so... The jobs guarantee would maintain that low inflationary rate by having this unemployed people, but they would be working. And uh, yeah, the details of that are a little tricky for me, but it's um, something that MMT theorists have written a lot about uh, that, yeah, I, I haven't quite got my head around. So there's that. And the other thing is to increase taxes, right? So if inflation is going wild, you can in increase taxes, reduce the money supply, or, or, or cut spending, right? So you, the idea of balancing, like, how much you're spending and how much you're taxing still applies. But instead mm. of aiming the deficit to be zero, it's now aiming for inflation to be zero. Mm. And it turns out that that could include like billions and billions and billions of dollars more than we currently have before inflation is going to start going up because of that printing or, the, the, or, or so these theorists claim. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, there's still elements of it that I, uh, I feel like I'm failing to grasp, but um, I I think it's a good sort of grounding, and I appreciate yeah, your yeah. little noon explanation. Thank you. No worries. Thanks for listening to it. You bet. Um, that's going to be us for the show. Uh, we are going to finish off with a submission from a listener um, in response to our bonus episode, which uh, came out last week, and it's about QAnon. Um, so if you are interested in that, we think it's a pretty good episode, and you can get access to it by signing up to our Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com forward slash ozpolsnackpod, and for one US dollar a month or more, you get access to our bonus episodes, and at higher donor levels, you get some... Uh, cool little snack merch um, and access to our Discord and you can ask us questions for our bonus episode. Yeah, um, so we, we really love and appreciate all of our patrons and would love you, non-patron listener, to join. Cool. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. Thank you, Noon, for spending the time. Always appreciate it. And thank you to Hugh for your submission, which is now going to take us out. Uh, before we get this, sorry, Hugh sent this in on an email, uh, which you can do, ospolsnackpot at gmail.com if you want to record yourself talking for about a minute. Um, take off your phone case or it'll be muffled. But he, uh, Hugh signed off the email like this. P.S. I nearly signed off the recording with Crunch Crunch, but I figured I wasn't allowed to say that on air. 
completely wrong. Please uh, steal all of our dumb jokes, memes, lines, and so on. Yeah. All yeah. right. Seize the podcast sign-offs of production. <laughs> Potluck, where you bring us next. Hi, Zach and Noon. You talked in the recent QAnon bonus episode about how the conspiracy inspired someone to shoot up the pizza shop they believed was keeping children in a basement it didn't have, and that reminded me of an incident from about three months ago that I read, so I decided to bring you the story of Eduardo Moreno and the USNS Mercy. The Mercy is a nursing ship that docked in Los Angeles in March to provide medical assistance during the pandemic. It wasn't actually handling COVID cases, but it was treating patients who would normally have gone to other hospitals, like with other problems so that those hospitals could focus on COVID. It's also been the subject of a bit of QAnon theory. Like, some people think it's trafficking children, based on some photos they found, which apparently show it has toys on board. You know, like every doctor's waiting room or hospital children's ward does. But other people disagree and think that it's transporting the deep state to Guantanamo Bay, where they'll be held for their crimes. Which is funny, considering it's docked in Los Angeles on the other side of America to Cuba, which is where Guantanamo Bay is. So it'd have to sail all the way around Central America and through the Panama Canal to get where it's going. Don't don't think about it. Anyway, Eduardo Moreno was a train driver from San Pedro who was running a freight train to the port of Los Angeles when he realized that the ship that was docked about 250 meters from the end of the rail line was the Mercy, and he proceeded to attempt to ram a ship with a train by flicking it onto full speed, lighting a flare, and standing in the cabin, flipping off the security camera until it hit the end of the line and derailed. The train made it less than halfway to the ship. It went over two parking lots and came to rest against a fence, and no one was injured. So there's no concrete evidence out yet about his actual beliefs, but apparently when he was arrested, he said, quote, you only get this chance once. The whole world is watching. I had to. People don't know what's going on here. Now they will. And later when he was questioned by the FBI, he said he wanted to wake people up and that he didn't believe the ship was what they say it's for. Anyway, I recorded the potluck because I think this whole thing is the perfect combination of hilariously ridiculous and genuinely extremely concerning that just sums up QAnon. Thanks.